0: Welcome to another installment of Anthropod, the podcast of the Society of Cultural Anthropology. I'm Jonah Rubin.
1: And I'm Ripa Fly. So last podcast, we brought you all a glimpse of the annual American Anthropological Association meeting that was in Chicago last November, and we're continuing that today. So Jonah, what was your favorite thing at the AAAs this year?
0: That's a tough one. I saw a lot of good panels, but if I had to pick one... Um, I would have to pick uh, a panel that was organized by Anthropod's very own Grant Otsky, who people might have heard on other podcasts, uh, that was called Worlding with the Body.
1: That's a great title. Um, what exactly is worlding?
0: Well, it's a really complicated analytic term, and I'm not going to be able to do it justice here. But briefly, it can be understood as a way of thinking about the body as not just an object, not just this inert, fleshy material, but as things that actively create the world. And this can be everything from the everyday experiences of asthmatics or of people taking medicines to the ways that certain people are trying to achieve immortality, and from the ways that people interact with their deities to the ways that scientists try to describe bodily sensations in academic journals.
1: Interesting. Well, let's start off by hearing an interview you did with one of the panelists.
0: Uh, yeah. So a bit after the meeting, I got a chance to sit down with Ali Kenner. Uh, Ali Kenner is an assistant professor in the Department of History and Politics at Drexel University. And we got to talk about her paper from the panel. So, Allie Kenner, welcome to Anthropod.
2: Thank you, Jonah. Uh,
0: Well, you presented this paper as part of the World in the Body um, panel entitled, Can You Feel It? Atmospheric Sense and the Emplacement of Care. And in it, you start off by describing an anthropology of air. So, for starters, I was hoping you could tell us why it's important for anthropologists to study something like air or the atmosphere And how we can go about doing this.
2: So basically the the whole idea of an anthropology of air comes from Tim Choi's work on environmental politics in in Hong Kong. In his book, Ecologies of Comparison, air uh, is an analytic device uh, for looking at relationships between bodies and places and specifically in Hong Kong, but also thinking globally um, and so, an anthropo- so air is used to look at the intersections and relationships between um, different ontological and epistemological scales. So, body, region, globe, politics. Um, so, for me, this means, you know, using air in the case of asthma, using air as a tracing device where you can follow air into the body through respiratory exchange. And see, for example, how atmospheric substances are interacting with airway walls or the immune system in the context of, you know, clinical studies. Um, And then you can bring this back out to looking at air in environmental monitors that measure pollution um, and how pollution levels are communicated to various publics. So how the public understands air. Um, And you can analyze air, the role that air plays or that certain kinds of air play um, in environmental health studies. For example, um, asthma and air quality studies that are focused on traffic corridors, or uh, asthma studies that are focused on uh, industrial sites, um, or that look at climate change, for example. Um, you can also use air. You can, by looking at air, you can see how pollution is regulated or not. Um, so in this paper, I talk about how, um, you know, air quality standards, air quality regulations in the U.S. have kind of, um, have kind of uh, gotten stagnant or there's been stalemates around that in recent years, especially around ozone. Um, and then there's global concerns with asthma and air quality and climate change. So air is really just a great device for... Um, you know, developing a multi-sided comparative analysis that allows us to see difference, um, that helps us see power and inequality in those, you know, across those different scales um, and to identify knowledge gaps and uh, cultural logics at work.
0: So in the paper, you talk a bit about how um, asthmatics in particular relate to these um, circuits of air um, and specifically, how they manage uh, the spaces that they're in in particular ways. Um, could you talk a little bit more about how asthmatics manage the spaces they're in, and what that can tell us about these uh, dynamics of air?
2: So, in asthma, you know, in asthma care, uh, there are really three uh, components to disease management. There is, uh, you know, health monitoring. There is, um, you know, medication. Usage and then there is environmental management practices, and environmental management practices are basically individualized um, actions that asthmatics will take to kind of control the spaces that they're in. And this could, you know, could mean anything from, you know, if if they go into a home or they go into a building that is moldy or someplace where there's pets, you know, leaving. Or using the inha- an inhaler, a quick relief inhaler, uh, before entering those contexts. Um, it could mean uh, using. Um, could mean buying dust covers or using or not using certain consumer products. It could mean getting rid of um, carpeting in the home. Uh, so, so that's kind of like the range of environmental management practices, but you know, overall, space, um, you know, space and place is just really significant for any environmental health problem, whether it's asthma or allergies or, you know, multiple chemical sensitivities. Um, And so these are, you know, these are conditions where symptoms are often triggered by environmental objects. So asthmatics are especially tuned into the qualities of place, um, which is what I am trying to get at in this paper. So, you know, air pollution and pets and pollen, Um, temperature so right now cold air um, for people living in the Northeast for example uh, is a huge trigger uh, for many people and in this paper one of the things I talk about you know that's related to space is how in different parts of the country different environmental factors are more significant so I use the example of you know in New Mexico and California you go to an asthma clinic and you'll see flyers and pamphlets about forest fires um, whereas on the on the East Coast, in Baltimore or Boston, um, ozone and particulate matter are more meaning or more significant uh, or are a greater focus, uh, for example, especially during the summer mo- months when you have really hot, humid coastal weather paired with air pollution. Um, cold air isn't really a thing in Florida or Texas, but um, you know it certainly would be you know, anywhere you have freezing temperatures. And this, all of this, all of this focus on space is part of uh, this larger project that I've been involved with for the last uh, four years uh, with uh, the Asthma Files Project. And we have, within the Asthma Files Project, we have a subproject called Asthmatic Spaces. Um, and within that project, we trace and compare um, differences in asthma knowledge and care across various cities and states. Um, so ecologies are different, um, ecologies are different across cities, ecologies are different across states and regions, but so is health infrastructure, so is research infrastructure, um, smoking laws vary from state to state, um, air quality monitoring capacity varies from state to state, um, demographics are another, um, spatially, um, is, is something else that varies by uh, by region. So, Knoxville, Tennessee, Los Angeles, and Baltimore—all three of those cities—you see, you know, really high rates of asthma, but the demographics are are very um, different. So, it's not, you know, a space is important for um, you know individualized uh, asthma care. Um, practices, but it's also important for, you know, environmental health conditions, you know, broadly understood. Okay. Yeah, so for me, you know, spatiality is one window into an analysis of asthma research and asthma care broadly conceived context, place, feels like it's just a really important dimension of environmental health science and care. And yet I think that it's a dimension that uh, doesn't come into the science and care practices to the extent that it should, because we're so concerned with uh, what's going on inside the body.
0: Well, one of the most fascinating things for me about your paper, about this attention to space that you have, is you don't just call our attention to the variances that exist between different cities and between different regions, but you, in fact, call our attention to a much uh, subtler level as well, with the variances of individuals in a room. You talk about how, you know, you can have a crowded room in which only the asthmatic, the one person, will be having a certain experience of that space, they were, they're, as you said, more attuned to the space than the others around them, and how they, in fact, lack a certain shared experience in many of these spaces that are triggering their um, symptoms. Um, so I was hoping you could tell us a bit more about how you study um, people with asthma, that is, people who don't have a shared experience often, who are separated from a shared experience with the people who they may be standing right next to.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, that's a really good question, and 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 this comes from this whole idea that you know environment is a shared um, is a shared kind of thing. Environment is a shared ground. We have commonality uh, through place. Um, but you know, for asthmatics, that's that's just not the case. And and this is actually this this kind of critique is coming from you know reading in the environmental justice um, literature about how communities become ill together. Um, and in the case of asthma, and I, you know, most of my work on asthmas is, is not in, um, you know, at, not at environmental justice sites. Um, the sir, environmental
0: justice literature being the people who call attention to the ways that factories and other um, site pollution affects asthma rates in local communities right
2: yeah that's right but not even asthma just you know not even asthma specifically but just environmental health conditions that are produced by um, the by pollution and and so not even necessarily asthma specific but just the health impacts of of um, uh, industrial pollution. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that it's hard to study asthma because the condition itself is very fleeting. So you, you know, you called up the example of an asthmatic being in a, a room, you know, with many other people and, um, experiencing symptoms or having a problem with, you know, something in the room or something about the quality of that room um, and no one else will have uh, will be experiencing or having that reaction to the space even if there's other asthmatics <laughs> in the room. Um, so asthma can be different from one person to the next. Asthma can be different um, in the same person over the course of their life. Um, And and this is the thing about asthma, it comes back to air. Air is often characterized as erratic, variable, and hard to pin down. Um, And Tim Choi talks about this in his um, book as well. And as a breathing disorder, asthma can be characterized um, by those same qualities as well. Um, Erratic, variable, hard to pin down. It's a heterogeneous uh, condition um, that's difficult to track and account for. Um, this is, you know, certainly the case. This is certainly true for public health studies, um, and asthma is often, you know, comorbid with other disease conditions, and that makes it difficult to parse out. Um, the flip side of this is that because people's experience with asthma can be very erratic and inconsistent, um, bad during certain seasons or certain periods of life. Um, And then, you know, they won't have any symptoms uh, for long stretches of time. Because the condition itself can be rather fleeting, um, it can be really difficult for asthmatics themselves to account for their own condition. Um, So it's not uncommon for asthmatics to misjudge how often they're experiencing symptoms or how much the disease is impacting their life because of that inconsistency.
0: One of the interesting things that um, you do in this paper is you take these breathing disorders, and you talk about how they're not simply um, a one-way result of, the, uh, of, of industry and pollution sources around them um, affecting a biological world, but in fact how we can read off things about the post-industrial world that we live in from the experiences of asthmatics. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about what studying these experiences of asthmatics and people with other sorts of breathing disorders can tell us about the post-industrial li- world that we live in more broadly.
2: Yeah, well, you know, this this whole kind of frame of um, thinking about asthma as a condition of late industrialism comes from, you know, Kim Fortune's work on, her recent work on late industrialism and and the idea that industrial infrastructure um, is outdated, it's corroded, it's crumbling, and it's filled to capacity. So thinking of landfills, um, thinking about smokestacks and traffic corridors and, you know, uh, environmental monitoring networks that are 30 years old. Um, But it's not just about, you know, like the materiality of late industrialism. Um, It's also about the logics of late industrialism where, you know, design paradigms and sense-making apparatus are no longer appropriate to, um, you know, contemporary needs and problems. So, you know, Fortune talks about how early 20th century infrastructure just wasn't built with uh, ecosystem or human health um, in mind. And, and she talks about this in relation to toxics and how we study toxics. So our current means of studying and categorizing toxics rely on scientific paradigms and technologies that have difficulty with the complexity of human-environment interactions. So this whole idea of late industrialism you know, it's characterized by structures that are falling apart and um, that, you know, the things contained by these structures, whether it's logics or materials, are exceeding the structures of late industrialism. And in relation to, to asthma, um, you know, asthmatic bodies are responding to the corrosion and the excess of late industrialism, or at least that's, you know, my, my reading of it. Um, You know, so it's a question of how are late industrial subjects engaging with their environment? Um, What practices are cultivated to deal with late industrial context? And part of my book project is to compare, um, you know, the care practices across state, clinic, community um, and homes that address the health impacts um, like asthma of late industrialism broadly conceived and you know one of the things and just a, a very concrete example is um... you know healthy homes and the problem with mold and pests so you have lots of people especially in inner cities that are living um... in structures that are older and they have mold problems or they have pest problems and the buildings are just not, you know, healthy spaces. So that's, that's one example of how, you know, a, 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 you're producing, you know, a structure, an outdated um, structure from an earlier time um, is producing a particular indoor air quality that is not healthy for us.
0: Well, Ali Kenner, thank you so much.
1: So in addition to Ali, I understand you got to speak with the rest of the panelists at the meeting.
0: Yeah, we were really fortunate at the meeting to have the opportunity to get four of the five panelists in the same room together to talk about their papers. So next we're going to hear a conversation that was recorded back in November at the meeting of the American Anthropological Association in Chicago with Miho Ishii from Kyoto University, Abu Farman from Princeton University, Grant Otski from the University of of Toronto, and Greg Lee Mohaxi from Osaka University. All right, so let's start with uh, you, Miho. Okay,
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so your presentation takes us through um, some of the dramatic changes that are going on mm-hmm. in uh, Bajpe. Yeah. So I was hoping you could start off by telling us a little bit about how um, the coming of mega industry to this region has um, changed mm-hmm. the what was once a, a rural area.
4: Okay, sure. Um, I conducted my field work at Bajpay area, Mangarutaluk, Karnataka, South India. So, in this area, uh, most people make their livings by cultivation of paddy and alakonots, and they have inherited their land from their ancestors and they uh, almost totally depends on the land. So, since the 1990s, a huge developmental project has been promoted by the central and state government. And in the course of this project, several villages and numerous religious structures have been destroyed, and many people have displaced from their land without enough compensation. So um, separated from their land, most farmers lost their livelihood and are now in very difficult situation. Moreover, the developmental project affects spirit worship called Buddha-Lanane in Canada, which is uh, deeply related to the land and nature in the area, so um, it becomes very difficult for the people to maintain Buddha or spirit rituals when they are separated from their land, uh, since the Buddhas or spirits are regarded as the power of the land and nature itself, so the people are now struggling to hold onto the land as well as to maintain but worship by protesting against uh, land acquisition.
0: Great. In your paper, you talk about how people engaged in uh, Buddha worship um, may not always act as autonomous agents. You know, yeah. we have this idea of people who, in their heads, they make decisions mm-hmm. about themselves and then they enact those decisions. But you complicate this narrative um, very effectively in your mm-hmm. paper, talking about how people can be thought of as minor partners in relationships with Mm deities. So could you explain a little bit why thinking about your informants as these autonomous individuals who are in charge fully of their own actions in the world Mm -hmm. is uh, problematic?
4: Uh, Yes, I think it is a very important question. Um, when we analyze social movements of peasants or farmers in general, we tend to see the farmers as political subjects who empower themselves through the movements. However, regarding this issue, I remember the essential question posed by Chakra Chakrabarty in his essay entitled, Minority History, Subaltern Past." It is a question of whether we should presume subalterns as a subject of the dominant, so-called good history. He argues that the efforts of the scars to make the subalterns the sovereign subject of history often turn out to deny the people's reality and to historicize them. And I think it is true in my field site, especially when I consider the relation between booters and people. The farmers who need public support act as political subject in accordance with the flame given by the social activists, However, at the same time, they keep an intimate relationship with the booters and follow their supreme orders. So their actions and decisions are formed through their interaction with the booters in split possession rituals. And actually, the farmers have never thought of themselves as the autonomous subject of the anti-developmental movement, rather they attribute their decisions and actions to the deity's supreme order. So, I think if we see the local people just as their autonomous political subject, we may fail to understand their unique way of wording in which they exercise their agency by surrendering themselves to the deity. So hence, what I wanted to say in this paper is the importance of the people's passive agency based on their embodied experience of booters. Uh, which led to the people, to the deities, and hence gives them the power to act over the predicament, not only for their own sake, but also for the deities.
0: Right. For me, one of the most fascinating parts of your paper was, um, it's one thing to say that farmers have never seen themselves as autonomous subjects and build a theory off of there, mm-hmm. But you actually move inside of these factories that have come to Bajpe yeah. to show that even people who don't believe in these deities find themselves in positions of being minor partners mm-hmm. with them. Yeah. Um, and so I was hoping that you could expand on that a little bit and um, tell us about um, how these non-believers become passive agents by entering into what you call in the paper communities of passion.
4: Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. Um, to understand this, I think Uh, It is necessary to consider the power of physical practices or performativity in rituals. Through physical interaction with booters or spirits in rituals, such as giving offerings to the deities or receiving prasadam (coughs) from the deities, the company workers gradually enter into the reciprocal agent-patient relations with the booters. So, in other words, they, they become the recipients of the booters' agency. So, even the following engineers who do not necessarily share their belief in booters can enter into the sensory reality of booters in a performative way. As members of the developmental project, they cannot but participate in boot lectures conducted in the plants, since most problems and accidents are very uh, often regarded as uh, but because of Buddha's agency. So, of course, in the context of the developmental project, the company employees are usually opposed to the uh, local farmers who tr- protest against the project. Hence, the company members are regarded as a kind of modern subject contrasted to the local farmers who believe in Buddha's. However, through actual interaction with the deities in literature, company employees also come to assume their vulnerability or passivity, or in other words, they realize the defectiveness or uh, of their power of as an autonomous modern subject in relation to the Buddhist agency. So through the repetition of literature practices, they gradually take in and also creates a community of passions uh, with their Indian counterparts. This community of passions in the tentative community created through ritual performance, and it transforms the participant from the autonomous subject to the recipients of Buddha's agency by involving themselves into the reciprocal agent-patient relations with the deities.
0: Perfect. And I hope we'll come back to this in the discussion, but now I want to actually bring in Abu Farman because in some ways the people who uh, you're looking at, Abu, are couldn't be more different from the people in Bajpe. Um, Your paper looks at this, what you call, an immortalist movement. So for starters, could you explain a little bit about what you mean by immortalism?
5: Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll say a little bit about my work, but, but, but before I forget, I think part of it and part of the good thing about this panel was that, in fact, There are a lot of ways in which these things aren't so different although they seem to come from different worlds Um, so my my own work is with immortalists um, and on immortalism so it's it's a group a movement of people mainly in the u.s principally in the u.s who are trying to achieve uh, physical immortality through techno-scientific means so and there's basically three strategies there's cryonics which is freezing yourself um, at the time of death to uh, and wait for uh, a future in which science will have defeated the various ailments that lead to death um, and when you can be reanimated. So that's one strategy. Um, then there is uh, biogerontology which in this way is the most mainstream of, of the three strategies with basically thinking about the body as uh, mechanical yeah. parts that fall apart and if you keep correcting those uh, and repairing them then you can add 5, 10, 15, 20 years bit by bit to life and reach escape what they call escape velocity um, at which point you will you know, keep, keep going and science will advance by a lot every 5 years so every 5 years you extend you get another 10 and so on um, and then the third one is uh, through artificial intelligence uh, and the idea there is that if you are a uh, reductive materialist, then, then and, and you think that your body is made up of sort of patterns uh, of, infor- of information, basically patterns of atoms that, that go about knocking into each other in your brain, and if that pattern can somehow be replicated computationally, because that's what um, people think is happening in your head, is, is a series of sort of computational uh, events. Uh, so if you can take that and replicate it on another platform, Um, Computers, silicon, instead of biology, then you will have a way of extending the the self um, into the future without it being reliant on this uh, terrible biological body of ours that betrays us uh, around this age. So on the one hand,
0: this sounds like a very technical process of how do we overcome the practicalities of the frail human body? But you, in fact, move beyond there to say that there's a real reconfiguration of how people think about what it means to be a human being. Um, so I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about this notion of an informatic being that you develop in the paper.
5: Yeah, so the, the, the particularly the um, mind uploader segment of this population um, really wants more than anything to achieve uh, a enhanced super intelligent state of being uh, where uh, our sort of already very complex 100 billion neurons and their all the synaptic connections and so on uh, can be even uh, made more complex more s- speedy rapid uh, on sort of you know parallel plot processing computational pr- platforms Whatever computational platform they imagine, but so so in that sense, they you you become uh, non-biological. You become uh, you, you you gain the possibility in these imaginaries of uh, uh, of being able to migrate between substrates and between minds and people and mind melt uh, and exchange consciousness and so on. So um, once you accept certain premises, certain pla- certain premises about consciousness and, and matter and computation then you have these scenarios through which people are really imagining this future and 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 not just imagining part of what I was trying to uh, do in this paper and in another paper is, is to say uh, these aren't just imaginings they're projects um, they uh, they imply uh, uh, organizations uh, that are trying to create artificial intelligence with this goal in mind so they're not doing artificial intelligence to make better microwaves that can wake us up and do you know those kind of practical things but they really want this part of it consciousness to solve the riddle of consciousness um, so in, tho- in those in those respects they, they really look forward to leaving the human body they look forward to enhancing it they look forward to changing it and if to some extent our humanness is related to our, our embodied uh, current then yes, then they're going beyond uh, human. But at the same time, they think uh, you know, that's not what matters about being human.
0: And so in the ways that the best anthropological theory always does, you in fact read back their practices onto our own anthropological theory in order to talk about how this has potentials for thinking through the kind of traditional philosophical um, mind-body issues. Um, that have dominated so much yes, of our writing. Yes, that's right.
5: That's right. And I think that's where that's where I mean I think that's where these two papers for example and some of the others connect again because I think with the concept of information and you don't have to buy into exactly all of what they are saying but I think I think there's a way in which the concept of information has acquired a, a very interesting role in western scientific discourse and analysis and it's just not just limited to these folks who seem to be doing something, uh, you know, radical uh, in the corner, but in fact, I think that uh, notion of information permeates a lot of the a lot of the physical sciences. And the idea basically is that information is the substrate of reality. That information is, as a lot a number of physicists and others have said, is is uh, is the universe. Is is uh, the universe is uh, an information processing machine that's gone from simplicity. Uh, to, to complexity and that's the only difference is levels scales uh, not not the essence which is informatic to begin with so if you create that continuum um, then th- then you're given a way to uh, think outside of the dualism that we've inherited uh, as part of exactly as part of the scientific discourse. So by pushing it, you're actually pushing those ideas, actually coming out the other end non-dualistically. And you know, then you suddenly have animism, and, and then suddenly you have intelligent matter, and suddenly you have you know, the, the self-motivated cosmos, uh, a teleological cosmos. So all of those things that, that got banished through the secular, through our disciplines in anthropo- of anthropology and so on, are being, through science itself, are, are coming out the other end and become, you know, not so far from the Buddhas who are animating these machines and the people and so
0: on. So, so speaking of um, the question of information and what the relationship is between mind and body, I want to turn to Grant Atsuki now and ask about the sensory labs that you worked
3: on in Japan. Okay. Um, well, I did my field work in Japan at a university-based lab that's developing uh, mainly wearable technologies, so little devices that you put on your body. And what's interesting about these technologies is that they use the idea of sensory illusions, like uh, a lot of people have seen optical illusions that where something is mo- looks like it's moving, but it's not actually moving. Um, so they use those kinds of tricks and techniques in order to make people sense the world and their own bodies differently. And <coughs> they do this in order to get um, people to, for instance, learn certain kinds of bodily skills faster, or in order to in, uh, feel like they're operating through another person's or another robot's body, and in order to you know, uh, exist somewhere else. Um, and in my paper, uh, what I found interesting was how closely connected this is to the idea of language. And one of the things that Japanese scientists are always having to think about and always having to do is to wonder how to reach a broader audience, how to reach the international audience.
0: Well, let's Uh, expand on that for a bit. (laughs) What happens when these Japanese scientists attempt to publish in English journals and all of a sudden have to think about how to phrase their findings in the English language? Mm
3: -hmm. Well, uh, the the most important terms that they end up having to translate from Japanese into English are um, terms that have to do with sensory illusions. How do you name a sensation or name an experience or name an illusion and then turn that into an English word that can travel as sort of a scientific concept. And in many cases this is quite an easy thing for them to do because there are many sensory experiences that are common to everybody, right? Like being having your arm pulled by somebody, everybody knows what it's like to have that happen. And in those cases, you know, the translation is, is fairly straightforward. But um, what happens in this lab is that because their devices Induce illusions and work on the body's sensory systems, they end up producing sensations that can only be experienced through those technologies. Now, the problem becomes how do you name uh, a sensation that most people haven't had before? You know, they don't have this bodily experience of this strange sensation. And in one case, uh, they came up with one of these sensations that you had to use very sort of. Specific technology in order to, to experience and they didn't know how to name it in Japanese And they came to me to ask me if I could name it in English um, But I couldn't name it in English. It's a num- you know, I couldn't come up with a name I there were like five or six words that I tried out, but they are contradictory in some ways, right? I had no good way to name this um, so Uh, They have other techniques that they use to sort of get around this problem of translation and getting their uh, uh, knowledge out into sort of the broader international community. And so tell us just a little bit more about some of the um,
0: successes and failures of translation that happen there and the kind of different pressures that go into making these decisions of how to translate these terms.
3: So one of the examples I talk about in the paper is uh, this feeling in Japanese it's called doki doki and it's sort of the the when you feel your heart pounding is that feeling at one level and uh, they had a machine that would induce this feeling of doki doki in a, a person who's using it and when they when it in Japanese they could add the suffix kung to it and it becomes doki doki and they could talk about this doki doki feeling inducing device and that makes complete sense right, um, to them and their sort of uh, immediate community um, when they translate this word into English you know there are, are words to talk about it, like your heart is pounding but uh, they want it to because the word Doki Doki also refers to this sort of feelings associated with romantic love they want to build that into this term that they use uh, are the, the translations they have as well so what they ended up uh, having to write in English was something like the the f- sensation of your heart beating when you're uh, the, the good f- when you have the good feelings associated with an attraction to a member of the opposite sex or something like that so you get this sort of unwieldy thing which um, gives the right context from their viewpoint for understanding what kind of feeling they're talking about but it, it sort of morphs as it's from Japanese into English. And
0: so what are the kind of implications of this sort of translation difficulties for the ways that we think about the connections between language
3: and bodily feeling, bodily being? Um, Well, going back to this example of the sensation that could not be described, um, one of the things that they do, instead of trying to, when they try and fail to find a name for a sensation, or a good way to describe the sensation, then they go back to describing the technology it's one of the lab members told me it's better to if you have a concept that's interesting it's better to uh, build a device around that concept and then write about that device uh, instead of having to go through these translation difficulties and the idea there is that hopefully somebody will also build a similar device and uh, experience that sensation for themselves and then they'll know what you mean you can have a text accompanying it, but they'll really get what you mean because they've had this sensation themselves. And they take their devices to technical demonstrations at conferences in order to do this. But it has uh, real implications for how well their science travels because they say uh, it. they're they're trying to like get pap- future paper referees to uh, experience their devices. So when it comes time to have their papers reviewed, uh, the people know what they're talking about. They have this sort of memory, bodily memory of what the sensation that they're now reading about felt like and get their paper accepted in nature or something and then it goes on to have a life outside of Japan. Great. And since you brought up the issue of international collaboration, I thought
0: now would be a d- good time to, to bring in uh, Gerge, who also looks at a very different sort of international collaboration between Japanese pharmaceutical manufacturers and um, Hungarian patients. So I was hoping
6: you could tell us a little bit about the context that you're looking at yeah, to start yeah, out. Yeah. So what I don't have, I think, in my paper is the Oka. Uh, this, this, maybe it's not the right word to use here, but uh, this kind of the exotic uh, part of uh, uh, of the things. I don't have goddesses. I don't have uh, synapses, and I don't have. Uh, devices that uh, reproduce sensory uh, illusions and things like that. My, my topic and my subject is absolutely mundane. It's <laughs> something that everyone knows about uh, probably, especially in North America but also in Japan and in Hungary where my field work was conducted and that's usually... So the, uh, the material itself is uh, medications that treat uh, high blood sugar and uh, as a second effect, there is a secondary effect that may also uh, be useful for preventing further cardiovascular complications. It's something everyone probably, uh, most people know about. Uh, and that's why usually my colleagues tell me that you couldn't have chosen a more boring <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but topic But out of this seemingly uh, boring topic, you extract yeah. these wonderfully interesting um, ethnographic stories that you then theorize on. um, The one that immediately springs to mind is this idea of wearing your disease, or wearing your medicine. So maybe you could explain a little bit what it means to wear a disease on you.
6: Uh, So, uh, the two field sites that I I worked, uh, where I conducted field work for this specific uh, uh, paper, Uh, one is uh, a Japanese uh, laboratory, uh, a laboratory of molecular biology, uh, which is in a university, so it's also affiliated with a clinic. So the researchers who work in this laboratory and they, uh, they're actually uh, working with a hormone that's called adipo- adiponectin and they think that this is kind of a, a link between diabetes and obesity. So these researchers are at the same time working uh, at the clinic and treating patients and uh, looking at the effect of uh, medications uh, on their patients in their everyday practice. So it's not, not as a clinical trial, but just as, as, a, as a daily practice. And uh, as they know very well, uh, and, and which is a, a common sense in Japanese diabetes care, uh, when you have chronic uh, conditions, Uh, It's not enough just to take those medications and and swallow them and and, uh, forget about them, but you have to learn how to live with those medications. And there's a beautiful term for this in Japanese, which is called, uh, in Japanese it's called, and it means literally to put something on the body. And that's a very common uh, phrase or word in in, in Japanese and they use it very commonly in diabetes care. People don't really Make a big deal about using this term. So it's, an, it's a it's a daily, everyday term. But what it means is that it has two meanings. One is that you put actually something on your body, like a cloth or a, an earring or whatever, an object. And the other sense is that you learn that something with your body. You learn how to wear a cloth, or you learn you learn both your body and you learn to kind of fit those ob- the object and your body. If I give you an example that probably more at least more people uh, would understand in a North American context a contact lens. I don't know if anyone of you has ever uh, worn a contact lens, but the first <laughs> time when you try to put it in your eyes, it's really difficult. I mean, it's, you don't know how, you don't feel it's not like putting on a glass, it's it's more difficult um, so we'll you need time that your body uh, get used to, your eyes get used to the contact lens and it also uh, related to your techniques of putting it in your eyes.
0: And you have this fabulous example of people becoming attentive more to their body when you have this um, nurse arguing with this doctor over whether somebody is experiencing the placebo effect mm. in one of these um, trials. so I was hoping you could tell us a yeah, little bit more yeah. about that example so
6: then I have to and what
0: that tells us about the um, the ways that people's understandings of their own bodies are yeah. being reconfigured through their interactions with these medicines
6: yeah uh, so then I have to move to my other field site which is in uh, Hungary and uh, it's uh, in a clinical trial center where people uh, uh, who are on uh, who are, who are following uh, normal treatment in their own hospitals, in their own uh, clinics? Uh, they uh, they are also uh, part of clinical trials uh, in this in this trial center, and then they uh, they are tested. Uh, I mean, the doc- drugs are tested uh, on them, uh, so they are taking either dogs or, uh, drugs or placebos. They don't know which, of course, because it's a clinical trial. Uh, so it's obviously in that case uh, they are not supposed to put it on their bodies in a Japanese sense. Uh, And also, we are in Hungary, so we don't have this uh, notion of uh, putting something on your body. But also, in a clinical trial, you're not supposed to know what you are uh, taking, right? In in any sense, you're not supposed to know. You're not supposed to know even if it's a placebo or if if it's a drug. And uh, that, of course, makes uh, people very sensitive to this. Because they don't know, they want to know. And it's the same thing for their physicians. I mean, their physicians don't know what they take either. Uh, but of course, their physicians want to treat them because it's not only an experiment, it's also uh, care. They have to take care of their patients. So it makes a lot of uh, ten it co- uh, it's a, a cause for a lot of tension and a lot of uh, 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 problems between patients and physicians because patients want to f- try to. They want to know uh, if it's a placebo or not so in some sense without of course being aware of uh, the japanese term of putting something on your body they're actually putting something on their body a sense of a placebo that is a sense of trying to make a difference a difference, trying to draw a line between a placebo and a not placebo so they're trying to compare uh, the effect of the something that they are taking with other patients. Uh, they are trying to compare it to the other medications that they are taking. Uh, and they are trying to find out in their own ways, they're trying to make their, consciously and non-consciously, they're trying to make their own bodies more sensitive to the something, to this chemical or not chemical something that is in their bodies. That's great.
0: Um, but I thought I would just throw it open and let you guys take over. Sure. Well,
3: I thought, especially listening to Sergei talk, sort of what comparison is, both uh, for people inside uh, or in our field sites. Uh, sort of the what, how productive is the act of comparison for them? And also, um, I guess implicitly, uh, there's sort of a different kind of comparison going on between our various papers. So I want to raise that as one thing. And the other thing is I'm struck by how like, fluid the boundary between human and non-human becomes in each of our various cases. Like with, with Abu, uh, if you can think of information as sort of the main substrate of everything of the universe and of having uh, uh, I think you st- mentioned self-motivated objects or machines or something like that, but there's some sense that uh, what's human about humans is also potentially what's uh, real about everything through this idea of information. So um, I certainly see that in my own paper as well, like where there's a very sort of strange slippery boundary between where one body ends and where another begins, whether it's mechanical or robotic on the other side. Um, so. I just wanted to mention those two possibilities.
5: Yeah, I have, I have a couple of things. I mean, I want to follow up just on, on the second point maybe, because I think, uh, again, I think that's where all the papers meet, and of course there's been a lot of revival of this notion in many different ways in anthropology recently in terms of you know, who and what has agency, rethinking that. And, all the new stuff on the ontological turn and so so there are different ways in which this has been rethought I think the way that that it became interesting in our papers was uh, uh, was the way the the body was implicated but only as a kind of a a, a, a threshold not a, not a threshold even a passage like I'm thinking of Ali's uh, a passageway for other things for information for drugs for uh, you know, for illusions and language, and I think language was, or even, you know, or or its absence, or its impossibility. Um, You know, and then, and then, of course, Buddhas. One hesitates to call these things spirits, because it's a loaded term, but just Buddhas. So, so the body becomes part of, uh, it becomes a medium. And I think that's, that's, that's where the, the, the notion of worlding, and, 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 you know, the Heideggerian sort of, the world worlding. Right, happening all at the same time through multiple bodies, um, I think it was very i think interestingly captured by by all the papers
6: I think I have a little comment on that because i think it's also i really think it's very important to uh, see this this mediative role of a uh, body and it's not a not as a and i think it it came out very good in these papers that it 's not an end product of something it's not a bottom line it's not something that uh, the final product or the final interest of uh, these papers—it's something that helps these papers to to move on to something else, to f- towards something else. So it's—I think it's ver- its a more productive way of uh, using body or embodiment. And I think word, the concept of wording helps in, in very good ways. That it's that we are not going to talk about—we were not—we do- not talking about uh, an embodied word, or it's something that is the end of the line, but something how bodies. Create new birds and how bodies uh, create new links, for example, between humans and non-humans and or, or other uh, links.
4: Yeah, um, I totally agree with Abu, and <coughs> when he talked about the uh, importance of body as medium. At the same time, I feel that if you presume the body as medium, uh, maybe we still uh, we still keep the how do you call it mm, the mind centricity or uh, you regard that uh, consciousness is uh, more important or uh, um, yeah, more important than body. But I think uh, the most important things uh, of our study is like maybe uh, body is not only the medium, but also agency itself. Yeah.
0: Mm. Well, thank you guys so much. And
3: thank you. Perfect.
0: Thanks to Allison Kenner, Miho Ishii, Abu Forman, Grant Otski, and Gregory Mohaxi for taking the time during and after the conference to speak with me. And thank you also to Rupa Palai for editing this whole podcast together.
1: And again, remember, the SCA's biannual meeting will be held this year in Detroit, Michigan, on May 9th and 10th. The theme of the 2014 meeting is The Ends of Work. The deadline for the individual paper and panel submissions is January 31st, 2014. Check out our website, www.colance.org, for more information
0: there you can also find our show notes with more information on each of our interviewees as well as all the previous anthropod episodes and you can also subscribe to us via
1: itunes stitcher and soundcloud you can also find the society for culture anthropology on facebook and twitter at colin's thanks for listening to another episode of Anthropod.